Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with chemical engineer Aaron Spearin about workflow balance, mapping value streams, and the disruptive chaos monkey. And before we get started with this episode, here's a brief message from Carmen. Hey, listeners. Are you a mechanical, civil, chemical, or process engineer? Are you interested in starting your own podcast? If so, you can get in touch with former guest of the show, John Chigi, for a very interesting opportunity he has in the works. For more information, you can get in touch with John on Twitter, at John Chigi, and hear all about it. Thanks, and enjoy the show. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 84, Workflow Balance, June 11th, 2015. So Adam, do you ever get complaints about traffic backing up at an intersection? Well, Jeff, during uh, construction season, which we are well into the middle of, uh, right. that's about a weekly occurrence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and where does the bad news come from? Do you get a phone call or an email message or a letter? Wow. How does how do you get this news? Uh, usually it's a, a voicemail first thing Monday morning, mm-hmm. which is always very, very pleasant to come into <laughs> the, right. the little flashing light on the phone. Right. Um, um, otherwise, it, you know, an email is pretty common. I don't think I've ever received a, a letter with a complaint. Okay. Um, and usually the email, somebody else got a phone call and, and they just forwarded it on to me. Right. Right. And so are the, the cause of these, uh, these complaints, are they, are they reasonable or are they expected or you just had construction going on and there's just nothing you could do about it? Usually if I get the call, it's last. Ladder goes up. <laughs> You know, sometimes uh, to do stuff, you gotta you gotta reduce the capacity of a of a road to to get the work done because there's only you know you only have so much road to work on and keep traffic on while you're building the other part of the road. Right, and and so how often is it that the complainer has an actual valid complaint that something has gone wrong with the traffic signals and the traffic is backing up and your department is not already aware of it? Um, actually, very rarely. Okay, it, usually. Um, I mean, or it's an occasional something that there's just, you can't predict everything. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in, in civil engineering, there's so much uh, randomness of this Saturday might just be a fluke Saturday where everybody decided they want to go to the the mall and mm-hmm. they all wanted to go to the mall at one fifteen, and they all wanted to go through that intersection at, you know, one ten. Right. And there's nothing I can do about that. Um, Right. Although my first question is, does anybody really still go to the mall? Um, Black Friday. <laughs> I guess. Well, I guess I guess that's true. That's true. Well, traffic engineering or civil engineering, traffic engineering aren't the only areas where this type of uh, balancing uh, is is important. There there are lots of areas of engineering where uh, it's critical that we find a way to match our our production capacity or or generating uh, capacity. Uh, with the uh, production demand uh, that we sort of balance this this flow. And so we're going to talk about that in this episode. And our guest for this discussion is chemical engineer Aaron Spearin, a trainer and practitioner of Lean, Six Sigma, and Quality Systems. He's worked in many industries, including the semiconductor, photovoltaic, aerospace, automotive, chemical, 
and home hardware markets. Certified as the lead ISO 9001 auditor and a Six Sigma master black belt, Aaron has been practicing lean Six Sigma since 2000. Aaron, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're so delighted that you could join us for this conversation. So, Aaron, how did you get interested in engineering? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. I think it did start when I was a child. You know, I'd I'd have a a set of blocks. I was probably about uh, 10 or 11 years old, and I'd be messing with these blocks and making some sort of Rube Goldberg sort of uh, mousetrap sort of situation with dominoes and balls getting hit over to knock over another set of dominoes. And and Mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time, I think I lost the love for that, and I thought I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And then... Around my junior year of high school, uh, my my English teacher um, sort of killed that desire for me. So she, <laughs> she, she was a little bit hypercritical at that time. Uh, and at the same time, my high school chemistry teacher was extremely encouraging. Uh, he mm-hmm. was also the physics teacher. And then, uh, so, you know, like, eh, maybe this chemistry thing will work out for me. And then it was the, uh, you know, I was told that chemical engineering was the highest paid bachelor's degree. Right. And so I, I said, I'm sold. I'm going to do that. That sounds like a wonderful <laughs> idea. Um, I'm not positive that that worked out to be true, but uh, that is how I got here. Right. Well, that uh, is uh, not the, not exactly the common path. We normally don't find people jumping from a career in writing to engineering, although I wanted to be a writer. And uh, Brian, uh, who's not with us this evening, started out his college career in journalism. So yeah, I guess it is a one means to an engineering career. Oh, you people who can write things and want to write things. Are you not a writer, Adam? No, no. And I'm shaking my head. I realize this doesn't come over on the podcast well now. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think I fit in the far more common category of engineers who absolutely hate writing. Oh, okay. So luckily you never have to write then, huh? All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So... Aaron, I I note that when you went back to school for your master's degree, mm-hmm. uh, you chose to earn your degree in engineering technology. Right. And we've had folks who are professors in engineering technology and deans of schools of engineering technology on in the past. Uh, but could you just give us our, your impression of the differences between uh, the engineering program you uh, took as a undergrad and the engineering technology program you were in as a graduate student? Oh, yeah. I'd say they were very far different, very different from each other. Well, first of all, my undergraduate degree in engineering was chemical engineering. And then my graduate degree, I chose a more mechanical route um, to sort of uh, balance it out a little bit. I was actually – the thing about chemical engineering – at least in what I'm finding, especially in Connecticut, where I where I graduated and, and worked, um, there's no real chemical engineering jobs. So you end up working in a process industry that is where I was, was dominated by mechanical engineers, which I don't know, there's a little bit of a tension there or something like that. So uh, <laughs> I'd be I'd be passed up, you know, for, for not taken seriously. She's like, well, you know, he's a chemical engineer. He doesn't really understand this stuff. And I was like, well, I, I think I do understand it, but you clearly don't think I do. So let me go back and get a mechanical engineering degree. And so that way I have that credibility. So I went back. I went into mechanical engineering 
slash manufacturing engineering technology um, because that's what was offered at the school. The school was local. Um, they didn't have a full engineering school at that time. They actually do now. So with all those caveats, I'd say the master's in engineering technology was two things. It seemed more practical to me, uh, definitely easier to uh, follow along with and apply to the sort of work that I was doing and easier. So I don't know if it was easier because I could apply it or because I had far more motivation or because it was a graduate level degree rather than an undergraduate level degree that the criteria seemed to be uh, not as stringent for grad degree um, or if it was the difference between engineering school and um, engineering technology. Right. And, and did you have any trouble uh, making the switch between chemical engineering and mechanical engineering technology? Or did it all seem just matter of fact, straightforward? You know, it, it was, um, I think it was matter of fact, straightforward, but mostly because of my exposure to industry already. So mm. the things that I was working with were, you know, I started to get more into solid modeling with the CAD. I had already had some CAD and already had a an appreciation for um, three-dimensional drawing. So all that took was, okay, now I'm starting from scratch to create a 3D model in this software, which everybody where I was was pretty much starting from scratch with, we were using uh, Pro Engineer and we were starting from scratch. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like I was behind the eight ball with that. Um, and then some of the other stuff was more industrial based or statistics based, um, which was pretty much, I'd say level, level playing field there. Well, great. Great. Well, now in, in addition to this, I note from your, uh, uh, from your resume that you also earned a bachelor of arts degree in German. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of different. Uh, I mean, I know that many engineers have, have, taken some some languages uh, but you earned a full degree um, in German uh, has why why the interest there and uh, has this been beneficial to your engineering career right so I actually started the German degree uh, at the same time that I started my chemical engineering degree uh, mm -hmm. so it was a dual degree program called uh, Eurotech out of Yukon and uh, I started that together to again I was trying to set myself apart from mm -hmm. the competition, so to speak. And it was basically a five-year program where you have an engineering degree uh, and, and can earn a, a German degree as well, which would also include a uh, six-month uh, study abroad or work abroad um, program. And then you come back and you graduate and you have two degrees, which was sort of modeled after the, um, the fact that a lot of the, especially in Connecticut, a lot of the engineering companies actually had uh, home roots in Germany. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as how has that helped me now? So I ended up finishing my chemical engineering degree, but not the German at the same time. So I still had the three classes left over that I was just like, you know, I really ought to finish this German degree. But um, so I did that slowly. And I think it was many years later, maybe, maybe as much as 10 years later that I finished the German degree. And, uh, what has it gotten me now? Uh, not a lot. I can order a beer in Germany, <laughs> you know. 
We got the oh, important bases covered. It helps me there, right? <laughs> Maybe it's an interesting talking point on the resume, you know, if I'm at an interview. But uh, other than that, um, no, not a whole lot. It was mostly just tying up loose ends at that point. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, I have met uh, some younger, more um, aggressive students who have gone through the process and have mm-hmm. had uh, a much a much greater success with having that be a, a career determining factor by doing the the overseas and completing the two degrees at the same time. It just didn't work out for me. Yeah. And were you able to do the six month uh, work abroad? No. So that uh, so when I finished my chemical engineering degree, I was like, you know, I really not sure what I want to do. I think I'll join the army. So I <laughs> I joined the army, uh, and that all happened. So uh, I had thoughts that I was going to be an environmental engineer, and I really wanted to get into bioremediation. I had taken a bunch of classes that were related to you know cleaning up contaminated sites, and I thought I was hey I'm, I think I might want to get into this uh, environmental consulting. And then nine mm-hmm. eleven happened, and no environmental consultants or engineering firms were hiring and it was like okay i guess and 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 i had a child on the way so i was like oh, i guess i better get a real job so i ended up having yeah. to go uh, into industry okay well we we just uh, our last episode was on career planning and uh, we talked about how these sort of ups and downs happen and, and these unexpected changes occur from time to time so mm-hmm. i guess you're a uh, a poster child for <laughs> that, uh, that being a possibility. Yeah. you know, and, um, you know, I don't really uh, regret it. Uh, it, I love environmental engineering, but it was, uh, and it probably would have been a great passion. It's like taking a significant pay cut, you know, straight out of the bat, but you know, uh, <laughs> no offense to any civil or <laughs> on the call. <laughs> so. I-, I laugh because it- it's reasonable or realistic. <laughs> So, you know, going into industry, I don't have to get my PE. You know, I got no no real liabilities on myself. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it just it just it all did really work out. I, I ended up, um, you know, uh, I was in officer candidate school. I ended up leaving the Army after a year because of mm-hmm. um, a loophole that I found. Um, and I didn't okay. have to go to Afghanistan, luckily. Um, right. So uh, it all ended up working out, and I ended up taking a completely different path uh, than I had than I would have if if that all worked out. Right. Well, I so su- so I suppose that leads us uh, directly into uh, what was my going to be my next question was how in the world did you move from chemical engineering into quality management, where you uh, now earn your living? Yeah. So yeah, another interesting story. You know, we love stories. So please company. share away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, I mentioned that chemical engineers, I think, typically don't end up doing true chemical engineering, meaning if you don't live in Texas or, you know, you don't work for, you know, DuPont or, or pharmaceutical, you're not really doing any of the classical, you know, distillation of materials, reactor design, or any, a lot of the chemical engineering curriculum is mm-hmm. based off of, hey, we want to build uh, a whole entire plant to manufacture this chemical. And so right. everything is based off of that. And almost no one does that. You know, the people who did that were, you know, 30 and 50 years ago, and we're just 
working with those plants that already exist most of the time. Maintaining so, and upgrading. Maintaining, upgrading, optimizing. Absolutely, right. Yeah. So most of us end up doing like a process engineering or some sort of problem-solving role. And uh, so it's more almost more like industrial engineering uh, in that case or manufacturing engineering, which led me into continuous improvement, which was the Lean and Six Sigma. And then there was a bit of a logic leap after that. The um, At the same time, my management – well – the quality manager at that job said, peace, I'm out of here. And uh, uh, <laughs> we, we had like three days to fill her role. And management came to me and said, well, you know, you know quality, right? <laughs> so they said, I said, sounds like you need a quality manager. They said, yes, and we'd like you to do it. I'm like, okay. Um, I already turned down the last job you offered me. I don't think I can get away with this twice. So I was like, yes, I, I will do it. And so a lot of, a lot of people thought that the, the, you know, in theory, continuous improvement, which was the lean six Sigma and industrial engineering side, uh, philosophically matches up well with quality management, but in, execution they're really really very different so um, I learned a lot of I learned a lot of different things but I will let me just say quality management is not really what I wanted to be doing and I and um, I think my success as a quality manager uh, reflected that hmm. so uh, can you tell us what exactly you're doing these days that is different so what is different so um, now I'm a trainer of of lean and six sigma uh, methodologies so um, maybe a little bit later we can talk what those are but sure um so i'm a trainer which means i have no real responsibility which i like you know <laughs> i'm not involved in any particular value stream anymore um i'm not fielding customer complaints which is what i was doing a lot of as a quality manager um quality manager was just too reactive and i would rather be on the lines of making improvements rather than for dealing with uh, failures. Um, so I'm tr trying to work more on the proactive side. And as a trainer, uh, I actually am working on teaching others the methodology so they can be the ones uh, going forward and making the improvements, the project managers, the practitioners. So I train up black belts and green belts and uh, practitioners of Leans and Six Sigma. Wonderful. Well, as as a teacher, instructor, we're going to have some conversation about production flow, product flow, uh, whatever you want to call it, workflow. And so maybe we can cover some some just basic definitions that people have probably heard but may not know exactly what those terms mean. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first one would be Six Sigma. Uh, when somebody says Six Sigma, what what are they talking about? Yeah, they're talking about a few different things, and uh, Six Sigma is a is a methodology. It's a philosophy. It's a metric. Uh, it's a buzzword. I mean, really, let's get down to it. It's it's a huge buzzword, and and depending on what industry you're in, it's a buzzword that either uh, brings you great joy or or great angst. Um, mm -hmm. So Sigma Sigma refers to the Greek letter Sigma, obviously. Um, that's is stands for variation. So that is your standard deviation. Uh, so the idea of six sigma is having a process that is the 
very little variation such that uh, less than uh, 3.14 parts per million are defective coming out of that process. So mm-hmm. if you imagine if you just imagine, you know, a goalpost, you have an upper and lower specification, uh, your process variation would be so tight that you could fit six standard deviations on either side of your mean uh, before you would hit the goalpost of either of your specifications. Okay. And, and if I recall correctly, the common terminology often though is not a, that's, that's the easier way to determine it, but they, they allow for some sort of shift, like one yeah. and a half sigma shift or something. And so it's actually the, the, it's not the, it's not the true probability associated with six yeah. sigma, but like four and a half sigma or something. Yeah, that's that. You're right. You picked up on the real misnomer. So it is actually, uh, and this is where statisticians probably roll around. So somehow we got a hold of this in industry and said, well, you know, and this is what I believe happened. Uh, you know, four and a half sigma just doesn't roll off the tongue very well. So we're, we're going to call it six sigma. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there, there is a, an allotment of this rule of thumb, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, usually four and a half sigma. But over time, there will be a one and a half sigma long-term shift and drift of a process. So we're going to give it an extra one and a half sigma wiggle room and, and we'll just call that six sigma anyway. Right. And, and I'll admit, I only know that answer because I, t- I taught a, a system measurements class last fall and one of the homework assignments was, you know, the probability associated with six sigma. And I, I looked at the instructor's notes and looked at the answer and said, hmm, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went through that three or four times before I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. now I understand where they came up with that number. Yeah, when you when you hit the uh, the statistics tables and you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, that no, no, that's not right. <laughs> and then, but you forget the magic uh, fudge factor number that we put into the curriculum, which is uh, oh, add or subtract one and a half sigma. Okay, well that's that's good to know, especially if somebody is uh, trying to figure out. They look at the numbers and go, why isn't six sigma really six sigma? Right. No, you're right. All right. So uh, the other term that gets used a lot is lean manufacturing. And what does that mean? Yeah. So and this can depend on who you talk to. Uh, lean is the uh, term coined um, after coming back from uh, what, watching how Toyota does their work. Uh, mm-hmm. The term uh, lean was coined by... He, his name is escaping me at this point. Um, James Womack. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, the the um, it's called uh, Lean Thinking, and the first one, uh, one of the great books, also was the Machine That Changed the World, which was all about the Toyota production system and how that was working. And uh, James Womack was a professor at MIT at the time, and somebody said, "Well, you know, what are we?" What are we going to call this thing? Uh, well, well, uh, call it lean. You know, it was oh, from okay. from what I gather, it was that that off the cuff, and uh, and then it turned into this entire methodology, which uh, in the U.S. and in the Americas, we've turned into something not quite like the Toyota production system, but uh, we still use it to describe how we interpret what Toyota is doing. And that is all about, um, you know, not doing work that the customer doesn't care about, you know, eliminating non-value added work, recognizing when you have waste in your processes. So there are 
Um, Toyota recognized seven wastes, uh, but um, we've actually added an eighth waste on there after after that time. Uh, and it's really about um, well, it's what it's really about is a culture of continuous improvement that you drive down to the to the shop floor, and it's about empowerment and allowing people to make uh, changes to their process. On, you know, on a on a more minor level. Most importantly, to own their processes so that you um, don't end up making a lot of scrap and that you do keep up with productivity levels. Now, uh, when we as consultants get a hold of this stuff, it becomes a, a, a stringent sort of tool set that you go in and you make rapid changes to an area to make it um, either go from a problem area to a fully functioning um lean area which means you're producing at a steady rate a steady flow and everything coming in and coming out is coming in and out at the at the same rate and sort of a a balanced workload but you know that's really just scratching the surface it's it's actually much more than that and um actually very deep into if you really want to copy toyota it's very deep into how you lead your company and develop the culture right Right. Amazing how it all comes back to people once again. Yeah, we seem to forget that we, we let the tools get in the way. And it's the same with Lean Six Sigma. We let the tools get in the way because they seem to be fun or at least give us some um, sense of magic or something. But it really comes down to the, the people to make all the difference. Right. All right. So uh, another uh, area, another term we sometimes hear bandied about is ISO uh, 9001. Mm -hmm. And so what does that, what does that mean? If a company says it's, it's following ISO 9001 or it is night ISO 9001, what, what does that mean? Oh, so, um, my cynical uh, impression of that, uh, as a ISO, <laughs> <laughs> as a former quality management system, uh, administrator, uh, so ISO 9001 means, Hey, we need to have standard processes to run our business. And mm -hmm. if you are ISO 9001, it really just is an affirmation. If you're certified, it's an affirmation that you have created these uh, procedures uh, and you have management oversight of these procedures to make things, make sure things are not out of control and it's validation that you are indeed following the procedure. So in a lot of ways some people break it down to and it's a little bit more complicated than this but some of the old iso said okay we're we're gonna say what we're gonna do and then we do what we said we were gonna do and that's that's pretty much it um there's not much more to that there's there's you know some iso systems get huge and unruly and become something that a business cannot handle um mm -hmm. and some iso systems are rather lean well, lean's not the right term, but rather light on the <laughs> procedures um, right. and have zero value whatsoever. But so long as you do what you said you were going to do, uh, it's all okay. Right. So if, if you say you're going to, to uh, wave a chicken over your head over every part <laughs> that comes out and you do that, then you could theoretically be ISO 9001 certified because you've done exactly what you said you were going to do. I suppose if you've got the literal auditor, yes, that would that would be very true. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, some auditors do take certain liberties, and where they where they they audit to the spirit of 
what the requirement says rather than what the requirement actually says. And there's there's some variation in the quality of of the certifications there too. And it's all a business, so it's it's tough to get full. Um, it's tough to get full transparency or whatever when you're paying an auditor to come in and certify you. Uh, they get paid either way, so it's it really is all a big business. Uh, but you know, for a while, uh, it was a differentiator. So it was a marketing differentiator. Say, hey, we have our stuff under control. Come buy from us. And then it became a basic needs. Said, okay, well, everybody else we use is ISO certified. We're not going to use you unless you are also ISO certified. Uh, and at some point, almost everybody became some sort of ISO certification in manufacturing. But that didn't necessarily mean that you could always um, bank that you were going to get, uh, that you weren't going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so what's the current status? Are, are companies ab- abandoning, uh, ISO certification or do you pretty much just have to have it if you're going to be in a manufacturing business these days? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, um, a must have, uh, it's part of the, it's table stakes, right? It's, you have to have it in order to even be considered as a, um, a reputable supplier for most, um, OEMs. Okay. And so, uh, a little later on, we're going to talk a little bit about flow and uh, a couple of terms that, that come up. Uh, I'm familiar with the term throughput time, mm-hmm. but there's an associated term tack. Is it tacked time? Yes. That's that. Mm-hmm. T-A-K-T. That's- what does that mean? And where does it come from? So tacked time, it's actually a, uh, a German word and it is the, it is, it means rhythm essentially the, or at least the spirit of it is about rhythm. Takt is modeled after the sound that the metronome makes as it ticks back and forth. So that is hmm. takt time is the rhythm at which the process should operate, but really it's the rhythm at which the customer wants their product. Okay. So, talk time is the what the availability availability divided by demand. Right. It is the uh, so it's the demand. So say your your customer says on a hundred pieces, and you and I want it by the end of the week. You would take that hundred pieces and divide that by the number of working hours, uptime hours that you will use to make that, and tack actually. Tack time is actually the time. So it's the time per piece. So you would take the time available and divide that by the number of pieces that you want uh, to produce during that time. And that is. Okay. So, so that is sort of a best case scenario. That is, if you were, if you wasted no time during your entire week, you could, you could make that talk time. Well, you would, you would create that talk time based off of the number of hours you were uh, willing to work. So you can plan for downtime. You can plan for maintenance. You can plan for breaks. So in a, in a eight hour work day, you may only, uh, include six and a half hours of uptime in the calculation of your talk time. Ah, okay. Okay. And, and how does that compare to throughput time? Throughput time is what ends up actually uh, coming out of the process. So talk time is based off of demand. Throughput time is based off of capability. So you don't always, uh, the talk time is independent of how well your process can actually um, produce these parts or how quickly you can get them through the line. 
throughput time is actual. This is how quickly we were getting these things uh, from beginning to end of the process. Okay, that makes sense. What's this last? Uh, what's this last definition here? I, I'm not familiar with that word. Is it Gemba? Gemba. Yeah, Gemba is a Japanese term that means um, where the work is done. So one of the one of the strangely the best tools at the disposal is getting out of your chair, stepping away from your computer, and getting down there on the shop floor and watching. Uh, so the Japanese were. Um, we're known for just standing on the shop floor and watching. If you want to fix a process, you have to first how, know how it's working. And Gemba means get out of your chair and go to where the work is being done and watch. Hmm. That kind of sounds like the management by wandering around. Yeah. Um, so long as you have a, a reason for what you're looking at, it's, it's not just not just aimless as uh, wandering around might sound. <laughs> right. I, I like this. I might have to use that. Uh in my day-to-day work world. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got all these definitions to talk about, you know, managing work, but you know, so what is workflow? Oh, okay. Workflow, workflow. Um, Well, you know, a lot of companies don't recognize that they actually have processes, especially in the, in the front office. So everything is a process. Uh, uh, something comes in, it's got to be uh, produced, say, in a manufacturing floor or processed in some other way. It could be a, a order entry process where a customer order comes in and the, cus- the customer service rep has to take that order. That is a process step. Now, um, so there is work coming in and it actually does sort of flow through the process as cars would flow down the highway or as um, uh, fluid would pass through a pipe. It has to come in one end and out the other end. So workflow is um, describes the path that that work has to take in order to go from usually a customer order all the way down through the customer receiving what they've ordered. Okay. And, and so if we have a uh, an input and an output mm-hmm. – those of us that have taken engineering classes, you know, have been through, uh, you know, some sort of mass balance or volume balance. We were familiar with the idea of balancing a flow. So are, are we able to balance a workflow? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It is uh, much like the same thing, although, you know, you can be constrained in some areas, right? Because uh, some most of these processes weren't necessarily put together with the idea of of balance in mind. If you get, say, especially in a manufacturing floor, if you get, you know, a um, a uh, a heat treat oven that can only do, you know, five hour batches of a thousand parts, and that has to go into a um, a a machining center that can only do. 10 parts at a time, uh, but takes mm-hmm. the same amount of time, then you have a real imbalance, a real, um, a real challenge to balancing out that workflow because they are working in completely different batches and both of them are sized without taking customer demand into account whatsoever. Right. So if you've got an imbalance, mm-hmm. then if the, the output uh, capability is greater than the input, uh, then manufacturing is off the hook. And it'll be sales that's called to the to the carpet for not producing enough orders 
to keep manufacturing busy. Right. Yeah, you have two options there. You have you can either get sales to bring more into the pipeline, or you can start shutting down <laughs> some manufacturing, which right. also will will probably happen uh, if if you don't fill it up in time. Right. Now, more common, I'm guessing, where you get involved is the opposite problem where the orders are coming in more quickly than the product can be uh, sent out the door. That's true, yes. Okay, and and so uh, what uh, what kind of evidence would you find on, on the factory floor for this type of process overflow? Yeah, you know, it's a lot like, um, you know, I like – I liken it to plumbing, right? Uh, if I have okay. a, a clog in the system uh, and right. I give it, you know, I got one flush to figure out that clog. Um, <laughs> I do not have a second flush without it getting messy. So right. uh, it's actually inventory. And where you see inventory, now inventory is uh, work in process or whip. And you start to see it pile mm -hmm. up uh, in front of the slower process steps. You just start seeing stacks of parts and you look at it and say, and most people look at that and they say, well, you know, that's just work as usual. But that inventory is there because the process before it is uh, moving faster than the next process after it. So work is piling up at that point. And that is a the first indicator that you have an imbalance in your workflow. Mm -hmm. And does it normally – I mean, is it just normally as obvious as day? I mean, you, you go and you look you look at the production floor and it's all piling up at one station or do you, is the pro is the analysis often complicated by, uh, you know, statistical variation. And so it tends to pile up at station eight for a while and then piles up for station two for a while. And you can't really sort out where the bottleneck is. Yeah. Now some of the, uh, at some level you can, that is true. Uh, what I'm finding mostly though, it, it obviously, it can be much simpler. So as a, Contrasting with the methods and the statistics of Six Sigma, lean can also can usually be accomplished with uh, far less uh, deep analytics and more. Hey, let's go take a look. What usually happens? And just some really, really uh, rudimentary skills uh, and tools to do that. So there is variation. But usually the variation comes on the demand side or if there's some sort of disruption in the line. Uh, but if your processes are up and running as normal, uh, they are, you know, so at a steady state. So you can tell which ones are normally piling up materials in front of them. Uh, the caveat, though, is if you fix one and you fix one bottleneck, and that's, I mm -hmm. guess that's a new term, if, you know, if you're... Uh, doing your construction and you've added a, another lane, you know, for one mile and then, you know, it, that lane goes away one mile down the road. Now you've just moved the, the bottleneck. You move the traffic jam one mile down the road uh, instead of fixing <laughs> the whole thing uh, holistically. So we try to not just fix one bottleneck, which is the capacity constraint and, um, and just move it down the line. We try to do a little bit of math to balance out and we'll, one tool we might use is called the process load chart to visualize uh, how these things would balance out um, in order to say, okay, so now we're going to get this through all the way through and not have it build up anywhere. This is what everything needs to meet. And that magic, that magic number is the tax time, really. In order for the processes to flow without having a buildup of inventory, everything needs to – the process time for a single part – 
has to come through, has to be below what it takes um, the tack time, which is fast, mm. which is at least as fast as the customer demand is coming in. Right. Right. And, and is your job made easier or complicated? Um, so if you're in a chemical plant, you might have a production where it's, you know, gallons per minute or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a continuous flow. It's a continuous major, uh, measure. If you're working on a manufacturing plant, uh, especially if you're dealing with assemblies, uh, you might be dealing with, you know, assemblies per minute or assemblies per hour. And does it, does it ever make a difference whether you're dealing with, with, uh, you know, continuous flow or discrete, uh, production units? Yeah, it does. And it, um, but it's not as different, as big a difference as, uh, one might think. So you define your unit as, as makes sense, uh, based off of your customer. So your unit could be a gallon, um, or your unit could be a, an assembly. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and where you want to define your unit is probably at the, 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 the unit that the customer purchases. So for instance, um, in, I worked in chemical batch manufacturing, so we didn't use the unit of a hundred liters as a batch. The unit coming from that batch was what the customer bought, which was a four liter jug. So that was the unit at which we measured the throughput of the process or the tack time. Uh, at which the process needed to operate uh, was based off mm-hmm. of how fast it could deliver a four liter jug. Okay. So, uh, you know, from an abstract perspective, engineers are quite familiar with dynamic systems. You know, we've all had to have uh, courses in differential equations mm-hmm. or even difference equations if we're dealing with discrete elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got an equation and we know how to solve those equations. So what's the big deal? Why don't we just formulate an appropriate differential equation uh, to model or plant and then plan accordingly so as to avoid process overflow? Hmm. Well, if you can find that equation, um, you would make quite a bit of money. <laughs> right. Now, no such equation really exists uh, to account for all the variation that you will get. Um, so you will... Obviously, you'll see a change in demand because demand won't necessarily be steady. You'll also have the fluctuations uh, as a result of um, uh, changing part types, changing uh, and just about anything, you know, downtime, unexplained down or unscheduled downtime or um, lots of different things. So, you know, just running things off of an equation, um, there is a balance, but uh, it's not it's not just about mathematically curing it well and that's a point that i think for those who have not worked on a manufacturing floor or been involved in manufacturing may sometimes be hard to understand because the uh you know the textbook problems are always well you've got parts coming in at this rate and parts going out at this rate and you know size your size your machinery and that's not too hard but in real life uh, as you've described there are many other variables at play yeah absolutely yep so, you know, when the system doesn't work, um, what's some symptoms of, of this unbalanced flow where you know, things aren't working quite as, uh, optimally? Right. So, um, so 
you know, like I mentioned the, the signals, right, of uh, uh, whip piling up, so that's your inventory piling up. So that's just sort of a, a signal that, hey, something is a little unbalanced. Um, but uh, even larger than that, if you have work piling up in one area, it means that that process is not meeting the talked time. It also means that you're, uh, you're unable to deliver your product in the time that you have allotted for. So uh, mm -hmm. that means that, you know, it's not just that one process that can't deliver. It's your entire uh, entirety of your business that can't deliver in that time. And one symptom of that is, okay, well, we're late on this order. So you, we have a couple different options. We can either run more hours than we had planned for, uh, which means overtime generally. So that's, that's throwing money at that. Or we tell the customer, sorry, uh, we can't ship this order. Uh, we're late, and we end up having a customer that um, missing those uh, delivery dates. So this idea of having problems finding where the problem exists reminds me of a, a book I read a number of years ago. There's a book called The Goal mm. uh, by Eli Goldratt. And uh, I think it was his theory of constraints was what the book was about. But I remember in my mind, what I remember was his story, which was his little, he had a Boy Scout troop and the Boy Scouts were marching along. And uh, by reordering the, the fast marchers and the slow marchers, he was able to keep the entire troop uh, marching in step together as opposed to what was originally happening, which was the fast marchers going out in front and the slow marchers dragging behind. And all of a sudden his, his troop was spread out across the entire woods. Right, yeah, and that uh, that that uh, slow marcher, he was the pace the pacemaker. Um, uh, his name was Herbie, right? And uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> he, uh, so it was the, the the bit of the Herbie effect. It's kind of like sticking a, a pace car in front of the pack. Uh, nobody can go faster than that pace car. Otherwise, you have you a bit of a, a sort of a caterpillar sort of thing going on. So the 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 head of the caterpillar goes way up, or or maybe an accordion. Think of it as an accordion, just like in the traffic. Right. They they um, speed up until they can't go anymore, and then the back catches up to them slowly. Um, but as a bulk, none of them get anywhere any faster. So um, yeah, the the strategy is to uh, make everything go to the rate of the slowest step. And if you want to fix the whole process, you have to fix the slowest step. Right. So the the idea is that the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And uh, Dr. Goldratt's advice was always quit wasting any time, any time working on other steps until you've, you fix the weakest link. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. now, now, my guess is that most companies don't want to do that. And most companies don't recognize it because uh, we're often set up in silos. So we have our finance group, we have our customer service, and we have our marketing and sales. And then we have different manufacturing areas that uh, fall under to hold different business units. And each one of them is optimizing their own thing, but they're not optimizing the whole thing. So they're extremely optimal within their own business unit, but the hands off between them or the handoffs between them and the entire process um, really make no difference. Uh, and, you know, it'll still take that much time from an order to come in the front end to the back end if they don't actually look at the whole thing together. So if you don't look at the, the slowest, the weakest step, all the rest of that is just uh, work and um, work that has brought no greater value with regards to the customer. So I, two questions come to my mind. So I'm going to say both of them before I forget them. And I'll try to write them down here. So is, is time 
the only critical factor here. And second question is, with all the divisions thinking they're doing a great job, how do you as a consultant, how in the world do you ever come in and sort out who's actually the uh, sort of the slow process, the slow member of this chain? Mm-hmm. The um, so is time the critical factor? Time, time. I won't call it the only critical factor, but it is the one that is the the primary output to which all other factors affect. Mm-hmm. So uh, quality. If you have a quality problem, it will affect time. Uh, if you have uh, safety or downtime or changeover problems, they will also also they will also. Uh, affect time as well. So it is the one that you sort of can rely on uh, to um, sort of as an analog to what the customer needs. So um, how do we go from beginning? How do we look at the entire thing? So we there is a tool out there called the value stream map. And the value stream map looks at all the processes end to end from the customer places the order to uh, the customer receives the order and all the process steps in between. And uh, what I like to do and in, in when we're doing this is to all those silos, at least for the duration of a project, let's break them down. Let's get everybody working together on this value stream uh, to so that we're not just optimizing it uh, in the middle um, so that we're optimizing it for the whole thing. And when you do that, you get these people together. One of the and, and I call it the magic of Lean. The magic of Lean Six Sigma, as a matter of fact, these tools work so well is because sometimes when you get these people together for a project like this, it is the first time they've ever spoken with each other and the first time they've ever seen the process end to end and the first time they ever knew what somebody else did in this process. So you'd also mm. often find, oh, you do that? I didn't know you did that because... I undo everything you just did, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and then I redo it this way, or or I didn't know you needed it that way, or I didn't know you needed this, uh, and it just becomes an eye-opening experience where the trick it comes back to what you said before, Jeff. It all comes down to people communicating again because yeah. somehow with all the silos and the barriers, they never did that before. Right, and 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 so is your. It, in doing one of these value stream maps, is it is the talent to make it work? Is it uh, is it technical, knowing how to get the right numbers and draw the right figures, or is it uh, more um, influencing and social, getting people to talk with one another, or is it just the fact you sit these people in the same room enough that you do that, and typically they'll start sharing the information they need to share. I mean, if if we got this together, and and it can be just a couple days, really, of of getting these people to start communicating, you can get quite a bit done without going into very much technical detail on any process step, just by having these people communicate and brainstorm uh, and share what issues they have with the process. Now, uh, you can get into a lot more depth of time studies, which is, okay, this person has been walking around for... 30 seconds. Uh, so let's cut down that 30 seconds. And that will come, I'd say, far after most of these upfront parts where uh, on a macro level, you can make probably about a 90% improvement in a lot of these business processes, especially uh, in throughput time, just because nobody ever, nobody ever thought them as processes and they were sort of hodgepodge put together 
just to sort of make them work. Some of them were the result of acquisitions of of just very convoluted um, systems that had to be together. Uh, and a lot of the front office is what's holding up uh, a lot of the uh, full-on deliveries that uh, manufacturing may not be able to keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find it funny how the, the front office um, seems to keep coming up as the problem. <laughs> and it's not the people, quote, doing the work. Well, that is the, 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 in my experience, that's, uh, that's what we learn. And it's almost... It's it's kind of um, they don't really know it uh, either. You know, there's uh, the people who are the problem. They certainly don't know they're the problem um, uh, because they probably don't recognize that they're even part of the value stream. At some point, they're just doing their job and they're just doing the job they've always been told and the way they've been told to do it. So, as a a uh, you know a machine designer, at at points in my career, I was involved in this type of thing where we'd be looking at how to improve the flow. Because we wanted to design the machine so the parts came out in the right location and the the uh, uh, the workers uh, on the line would be able to to grasp the part easily or convey the part easily, that kind of thing. But usually we were pretty constrained in what we could do because someone was coming to us with a set of specifications that they wrote up based on what how they thought it should go. Mm-hmm. And so as the designer, uh, uh, especially, I mean, I worked in both cases where I was an in-house designer where you had a little more flexibility to go poke around and ask questions without, you know, uh, getting in trouble. And as the outside designer where you basically came into one meeting where they said, here's what we want. You had 30 minutes to ask questions. Then you were sent on your way, uh, you know, and, and there was, you could ask, you know, you could call and ask questions of the, of the engineer in charge, but you certainly weren't able to say, call, uh, finance or call, uh, human resources or call other departments that somehow might be affecting what's going on on the manufacturing floor. Hmm. Um, so it, it, do you, do you have any advice for those who are in that situation, how to, you know, kind of, what kind of questions they should be asking or, or, you know, where they should be poking around trying to find that information? Yeah. You know, that's, that's tough. Um, what, what, what I can say is that um, for every, product or design or deliverable, there's more than one customer. So there's not just the person who's paying your way over, although they may be the most important customer. um, They also have customers and it would behoove them, uh, if you were a designer or a project manager, it would behoove them to uh, inform you as to what other stakeholders uh, may be affected by this change you know, there's a st- statistic out there that, you know, improvement uh, methodologies like Lean and Six Sigma fail 70% of the time. And wow. they don't fail because the, the the methodologies aren't sound. They fail because of the failure to take into account a lot of these people issues which come to stakeholder which really comes down to you know they talk about the 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 limbic system and and the and the the lizard brain and the survival tactics that we have that say hey i've got this thing set don't try to change this on me um and and that's that doesn't even take into account the egos that come into it which i do believe are also significant in there so if you're a designer and you have the clout uh to or the influence to you know, convince your customer to to open up their mind to other other people's input. 
that's the best I could uh, say to do. At the end of the day, though, if you're a designer and you're like, well, I got to get paid <clears throat> and this guy's willing to pay me to do it exactly how he wants it done and uh, I won't get paid if I don't do it exactly how he wants it done, you know, there's a practicality to it as well. Uh, everybody's got to eat. Right. Right. So I, I will admit that there were there have been plenty of times where the um, the perfect solution was uh, even in a lean six sigma situation the perfect solution was tabled to um, to have a good enough solution that will actually be implemented. Right. Otherwise, you end up with nothing. Yeah. So, Aaron, uh, when you've you've dealt with your, these customers, you've gathered the information, uh, you've poked around. They allow you to poke around wherever you need to poke around, and you get the information you need. Uh, how do you work your magic? I mean, how do you go about balancing process flow? I mean, typically, are you just making a suggestion to management? Are you going out on the on the on the manufacturing floor and 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 helping you know either the manufacturing manager or an engineer or the line worker? Uh, redo what they're doing or just how do you how do you improve process flow right so we mentioned the the value stream map and if you have the team that's involved with that value stream so we're talking about um, there are events called kaizen events which um, can be useful when you're trying to make a uh, a fast assessment and uh, recommendations for improvement in a value stream so if you get everybody in in these value stream maps if you get like a war room, you get some butcher block paper and you have uh, sticky notes set mm -hmm. up as process steps. That way, the entire team of stakeholders, people who are affected by that process or actually workers in that process can see everything as it goes. One of the best ways to figure out uh, how to improve the flow through that value stream is to go through it with the people and say, okay, is this step value added with respect to what the customer wants? And you can go through each process step or tasks within those process steps and find out that a lot of the work that's being done and statistically less than 5% of all the work that we end up doing in our companies is value added with respect to what the customer cares about. So there's quite a bit of low hanging fruit to eliminate. Uh, we, we say we can't keep up with processes. We can't keep up with demand. We need more people. We need more machines when in reality, we're actually doing far more work than we ever really needed to do uh, somehow, some way that just accumulated into our processes. Uh, and so that value stream mapping and getting people together to talk about it and going to Gemba to see is more of a, hey, it's an eye-opening experience. You may have not recognized before that you actually don't need to do this work and that it is just legacy from something else that either no longer matters or never really mattered. Um, and then the real trick is trying to get people to, um, for themselves, determine whether or not they can stop doing that work altogether. So if there's this 95% uh, of work is not value added to the customer, but there's got to be work like uh, repair and, and maintenance of equipment, which really the customer doesn't care if you have to fix your equipment. Mm. Uh, how, how do you, is there a way to differentiate that? Yeah, there there is some differentiation, and some of it would be um, there's a difference between customer value added and business value added. Now, I, I don't really like the term business value added 
because it implies that it has to be that way and that it can't be improved. Um, but there, there is some non-value-added work that you can never just eliminate. So that's maintenance. That's uh, a lot of times quality inspection. It, quality inspection, by definition, is considered non-value-added. However, you know, try telling your customer you're no longer going to inspect their parts. Uh, that's just not going to happen. So even though those are by definition, non-value-added, there is that level that needs to um, remain. But some other things like keeping certain logs or uh, running certain reports or some of these other things that get in the way of, of the processes that don't actually need to get in the way of the processes or mistakes. Mistakes is another one that uh, just keeps happening. Um, so you try to identify those sources and eliminate those. Right. So that, that 95% number just seems awful high to me. Uh, but, but I have no reason to, to disagree with you. Um, is it, is it all just legacy? I mean, somebody designed it, you know, in not, the process in 1975 and, and the process changed in 1985, but the, you know, downstream stuff didn't change it. Uh, how does this happen? Yeah. So, I mean, it really come mostly, I'd say it comes down to the, um, the definition of value at what's value added and what's not. So um, one way of looking at it is, can I deliver this part without doing this process step? Mm -hmm. And um, if you say uh, yes, then uh, then it's probably non-value added. So that would be uh, almost all the almost all of the front office, almost all of the overhead, almost all of those processes. The customer doesn't care how you do it; they just care that it's done. So the customer like inspection. Why is inspection non-value added? The customer, well, you're not doing anything to the part. You're not changing the form, fit, or function of that part. So all you're doing is verifying that the form, fit, or function has been um, achieved. Well, they don't really need your verification that it's achieved. They just need it to be achieved. And that's why that, by that definition, is non-value added. So part of it comes into the definition. And, and it is a pretty strict definition. That way... People say, okay, that keeps the focus on the customer. And that's really part of the point here is to keep the focus on the customer rather than the internal focus, which if we were all just internally focused, we, we would never really make any improvements at all. Right. But, but your description of that makes me think that uh, obviously if you would want to improve, let's say you have a machine part, you'd want to uh, improve your machining performance so that there wasn't a need to inspect 100% of the parts. Right. You would re you'd try to reduce the variation there. Um, but in actuality, the, the machine, oftentimes, that is the value-added part. That mm -hmm. is not usually the part you actually have to do any work on. Uh, it is all the other uh, processes that go on around that that are non-value-added that generally end up getting in the way. So sometimes you have a machine that's doing this value-added work. You said, that's it. That is not what we're trying to improve. It is the 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 setup, uh, the change over times, which is non-value-added, the downtime, which is non-value-added that we need to change. Or it is uh, how we organize things around the machine so that uh, people aren't stuck searching for tools where they don't belong. Uh, so it really comes into it's a little. It's a lot more holistic than just speeding up or uh, how one machine does the job. Mm -hmm. But I, I can see where you have to have a somewhat of a culture of faith uh, for entire, you know, especially across uh, across departments for this to work. 
if my job is bringing uh, parts to the machines and I've been earning my le- living for many years doing that, then I'm not going to be too keen on the consultant who comes in and says, hey, we're going to rearrange things so we don't need you bringing parts to the machine anymore. Uh, yeah. Or if I'm if I'm the if I'm the uh, the inspector the lead inspector and you're telling me well we've improved the processes around the machining so instead of doing 100% inspection and you working 55 hours a week and getting 15 hours of overtime uh, we don't need that anymore you're only going to inspect 10% of the parts and we've now we now need you to go do some other job in addition to your inspection uh, routines that person might fight the change as well. Yeah, so I would. I, you call it a culture of faith, but I, I'd call it a, a culture of uh, of resistance, and that's completely natural. And it is what we all end up facing, and it, and for good reason. Uh, there's so many lean and six sigma efforts that, uh, as a result of all your hard work, you no longer have a job, um, and so they result in layoffs, which completely destroys the credibility of of the system and uh and actually undermines the entire philosophy that is behind it which is based off of empowerment uh, uh of the of the worker cuz you actually can't get to success without getting the line level worker the person actually doing the work to give you the truth about what's going on there and to contribute to uh making improvements to this so a lot of effort has to go into saying we're going to do this. Nobody will lose their job as a result of these efforts. Uh, jobs will change, and they may feel uh, uncomfortable, but we promise, and this has to come right down from above, nobody will lose their job as a result of this. Right. And that that's a tough sell because not all of them uh, keep that promise. Yeah, exactly. So so you as being in the you know the quality management field uh, – you're you're handicapped by the fact that for whatever reason, seventy percent of the projects don't end up succeeding, and and then those that do succeed, uh, the workers who cooperate may be unrewarded for their cooperation. Yeah, that that is that is a legitimate concern. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, you know, the technology is easy. If we just get rid of the people, then it all goes so smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you were t- saying, Aaron, that that in these, you know, this ninety five percent of uh, non value added that it builds up over time because of you know legacy decisions, and, and you know, I I look at my own you know computers system, you know, my filing of stuff, and and I filed one way for a couple of years, and I decided to file a different way, and I can't remember which computer drive I put something on, you know, it, I think it happens to the best of us, but, you know, we can't keep track of, uh, an optimal configuration for all things at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a, in a business, are, do you have any recommendations for how you go about, uh, you know, minimizing this, this legacy cost over time? I mean, change will happen and the parts that you used or ordered or implemented, you know, five years ago, sometimes you can't get them anymore and it requires, you know, you make compromises. Uh, it, but is there any way for, for us as engineers to uh, sort of keep uh, process flows from becoming unbalanced over time? Yeah, and that, that really where it comes down to, um, we talked about, you know, keeping your promises to your front 
frontline employees, when you develop this culture, when you get what's known as a Kaizen culture, where this just continuous improvement, where it's not you're not just doing large events anymore to fix uh, a broken process. You're uh, continually improving on the current process, and and you're empowering the line level employees to be the watchdogs, to be the guys who have the ideas to make things more efficient and, and more effective. And when you get to that point, you actually have a process that is can be quite uh, versatile or agile to any disruptions to the supply chain or any mm-hmm. uh, mistakes. You know, the, the, the line worker says something's not looking quite right. Let me stop this process. I want to check it out. And that way you don't end up making a lot of bad parts that make it on right on through the line. Uh, so we're, what I was getting to you know if you keep that promise to your line level employees and you and you make them the value added personnel that they actually are and give them the respect uh of their uh expertise to recognize and make improvements in their own work areas that's really the direction you want to go so whenever you have a that disruption maybe in a supply chain it's not just what can the engineer do to fix this uh this process it is um, who can the engineer rely on in this process to give them a uh, some insights on what can be done to mitigate this issue? It's it's not it's not it's despite what we may have learned or thought we learned in engineering school. Your best bet, if you're an engineer, especially on the process, you need to go and ask the line level worker uh, what they think about this process because they know, uh, and it's possible that nobody's actually ever asked them before. So GASP, your your ability to solve differential equations is not the key to success here? Um, no. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> my, I, you know, for, for, a, a, a sm- uh, for a small time while I was in college, I was like, man, I shouldn't have sold my DiffyQ book. But uh, as I look back now, I was like, well, you know, I, I'm glad I sold, <laughs> I sold that <laughs> book. <laughs> DiffyQ was fun. It was kind of interesting, but um, no, I never needed it. Yeah. Yeah. So as you, as you were talking about making a production process robust, it popped into my mind that I've read that uh, Netflix, as part of their ability to roll out their product, uh, they've got a process, I think they call it Chaos Monkey, but basically it's a, you know, sort of a background service that sits there and intentionally disrupts their system and with the idea that if their uh, programmers have uh, successfully and correctly programmed their network to handle disruptions, that Chaos Monkey will not be able to do too much damage. But wow. in order to enforce them to constantly be aware of the possibility and to be on their toes and to make sure everything's working, they run this in the background, uh, intentionally disrupting uh part of their service. And I'm curious, have you ever heard of anybody in a manufacturing facility trying that kind of approach? Oh, wow. That is interesting. Uh, I know I've never heard of that. Uh, let's, let me think. Um, you know, I think in a, a small company, the mm-hmm. one, one of which the, you know, I, I think a Walmart, you know, not, not the Walmart we think of now, but the, the Walmart where the owner used to actually show up and, and test his workers to make sure 
that uh, they were you know, treating customers properly. I think on the smaller level, uh, I could see that happening. But I, I got to say, I don't, I don't believe that anybody's ever purposefully disrupted any of the manufacturing areas that I've ever been involved in. I mean, there's plenty of disruptions without that. So, <laughs> you know, if I want to say purposeful disruption would be called new design, you know, I'll just call it that. A new design <laughs> came through and that was very disruptive. So I, I, I think you can call it, yeah, new design. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and so the years that you've been uh, working in this area, are there any common solutions? I mean, do you find yourself time after time going, well, they should have done ABC and, and it would have been fixed? Yeah. And, you know, and, and the common solutions and, and let me just, I guess it's, it's common problems. So every, every project you get involved with starts with the same, starts with the same level of resistance from the same level of, uh, of management, right. Uh, from the same level of uh, these things. So we, you start to see the same themes uh, over and over. Now, each solution is going to be unique, um, but they're still based off of getting rid of the non-value-added work in one area um, versus, um, you know, uh, leveling the load between different workers. You know, uh, some of these processes, they'll have, you know, one person doing a job and they did, they, it takes them a couple seconds and they just load it onto the next person whose job is to, uh, much more complicated and it takes them an hour. Uh, whereas, you know, one person's working all the time and another person's just twiddling their thumbs and not doing any work. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, you try to level, level that out a little bit. So those are some of the easy solutions that you can get done really quickly. Um, so, you know, on, on some level, everything is unique, but when you when you take more macro view, a lot of them end up being uh, fairly similar, and that's why the events and the brainstorming and just the communication and the value stream mapping are are so effective because uh, on a high level, that's what's been missing most of the this whole time. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, I heard that you know cr creative staff or you know designers, engineers are doing planning. Uh, that their the magic number for how heavily to load them was about seventy percent, and mm -hmm. that if you if you loaded them less than that, they would become bored, and if you loaded them more than that, then when the crisis came, because inevitably the crisis comes and everybody you know all hands on deck, and you've got to solve the problem, and the customer's upset, and you got to you know work late into the night to get it fixed. That if you if you went over that, uh, they would burn out. Um. And I've certainly been in some some situations where we were we were burned out. Mm -hmm. uh, so is is there any kind of rule of thumb like that in in manufacturing and process flow, or is or is that just vary depending on the situation? Yeah. So there is there is um there are some I'll call it uh, discounts that you might give. So uh, we talked about the tack time, and the tack time. Uh, is based off of the customer's number and the n number of hours you're willing to work to meet that. Um, there's also, uh, I'll call it discounted tack time, where you say, okay, well, we can't do that all the time. So let's take 80% 80, 80 of that and have that be the number that we want to strive for. Um, and that might be the process cycle time, uh, planned cycle time, sorry. So uh, it is it is based off of the tack time, but it is discounted and gives a little bit of wiggle room between um, it, between the tack time 
and the um, time that you're shooting for, it's not really um, it's not really necessarily backing off to make things easier. It's actually making things harder. That way, you are further away from missing that. Um, but it does make you have to subjugate all your processes to that new time, and uh, that way, if you go over that, you don't miss it. So. Uh, it's not going to prevent you from having to make improvements. Actually, it's going to force you to make more improvements than you may have done uh, otherwise. Um, so where it really comes in, don't plan on your processes running full bore. Your people are going to get tired. Uh, you have to. That's why I say out of eight hours, I plan for six and a half. Out of a ten-hour shift. I plan for seven. You know, out of a twelve-hour shift, maybe I'll get eight um, because people just yeah. cannot be full bore all the time like that, especially if uh, if you have a culture of running some of these places, they're running at least 20% overtime week upon week upon week. And that's just, that's they love the money, but you're certainly right. not getting top performance out of them. Right. So we, we've, uh, we've seen lots of headlines recently about, you know, robotics coming along and cheap robotics becoming more available. And, and, you know, for $25,000, you can buy a robot that's going to work you know, 24 seven and be able to do some of this easy assembly tasks that, that you could hire a line worker to do. Uh, so what, looking forward, what it, are you at all concerned about that? Does that affect the need for someone who has your, uh, your experience and expertise? You know, um, not generally so much because usually what the robot is doing is the value added work, right? So the value added work Typically, it's not something I'm going to work work on. Um, there are some that's the five percent. Yeah, right. That's the five percent. Right. <laughs> There's the whole rest of it, which is people centric. And frankly, even if I automated all of that, it would still be non value added. There's a glut of work that's being done, busy time, uh, and and you see that you see that anywhere you go. Uh, it is just. The front, the front office is full of it. Uh, I'm sorry, I just, it's the truth, uh, and uh, there's, uh, but we don't realize it, you know. And and frankly, it's hard to it's hard to communicate to somebody. Hey, what's your job? Oh, I'm in finance. Oh, so you're non value added? Uh, no, I'm very important. Oh, well, not according to this definition. So that, yeah. um, but I actually I introduced myself first as non value added myself because I'm a I'm a consultant. I am a teacher, and the the customer does not care that I uh, am getting paid to teach others to improve the processes that that give them the product they want. I'm about three levels removed from the customer. I know and I am proud and I recognize that according to the customer, I am non-value added. The final customer, I am non-value added. Right. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm not terribly concerned with robotics. I mean, robotics are a a a fact of life and it's it's it is a bit unfortunate that uh jobs are re being being replaced by robots However, on on the flip side the creation of those robots and the maintenance and the upkeep and the programming of those robots are creating new and different jobs but they are replacing some of the more manual uh labor the people who get tired the people can't weld in the dark the people can't stay up all night non-stop um uh a rule of thumb, and I, I hope people are still following it, but you know, the robot should only replace a person where the robot can be more consistent in quality and or it's a much safer work environment uh, to have the robot doing it than 
than the person. If if those two things aren't really the case, then automating that process is probably not going to get you much benefit. Right. Unless you take a look at the financials and you go, I can hire this, I can buy this robot for 25 grand and it's going to cost me much more than that to hire three shifts of workers. Oh, yeah. Well, then I, I think there's a big assumption there that the robot's going to con- also continue to work. Um, and I've, I've worked with plenty of robots myself that uh, required, you know, three hands on people to get it back up and running again, you know, for, you know, four hours at a time. Well, it, it, many times it's the it's the hope and the promise, uh, not what is actually delivered. Sure. Uh, which which accounts for the number of exercise machines that are sitting in living rooms and dens around this country. <laughs> the, the the salesman will never tell you that that robot's going to take three guys four hours to get back online when it quits working. No, that's true. <laughs> and you know what the 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 reality is that robot the salesman never tells you that because. Uh, had you followed the maintenance instructions for that, you could have avoided, you know, the uh, the uh, the encoder being completely shot by the time you really, really needed that <laughs> thing to run. Hmm. I I sense that you've run into this problem before. <laughs> yes. Well, you, you try to keep a thirty-year-old a robot uh, on its on its last leg, and it never finds the same position position twice. You be, you start to wonder. Ah, oh, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, Aaron, I understand that you also are a podcaster. Uh, yes, I do. I have the um, – I call it the E6S Methods Podcast. And I do a, re- a weekly show with my uh, co-host, Jacob Curian, and we are both Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belts. He's in the uh, insurance – or he's in the – finance industry. I'm now in the telecommunications industry. We're both completely out of manufacturing and uh, um, uh, we do a weekly show where we try to actually go through uh, some of our experiences and going through projects and try to uh, empathize and frankly sympathize with project managers who uh, have to deal with these things. And, And we like to go through the mistakes that we made and just sort of give some insights of you know, how to use a tool or um, what sort of mistakes you might run into or um, basically tips and tricks uh, in, in order to improve upon uh, for the practitioner and improve upon how they go about that type of work. Right. And uh, so is your audience or, or if someone comes from our audience and uh, doesn't have a strong background in Six Sigma, Mm-hmm. Uh, or is the level something they could they could listen in and pick up on, or are you assuming that that your listeners have a an advanced understanding of uh, the, this terminology and, and uh, methodology? You know, I think if they if they do what I do, and uh, every time I happen upon a new podcast, I I download all of them immediately, which I did with <laughs> yours. I download all of them immediately, and I listen to all of them on double speed until I'm done with them, until I've caught up. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, if it, actually it's a very slow and steady pace with us. Uh, you know, the Lean uh, and Six Sigma um, framework is developed on a DMAIC, define, measure, analyze, improve, control. And I've been going, we've been going in order of that. And for the last year and a half, we're still only about, I'd say, 10% through 
everything I could think of, of of getting through. So, if you were to equate us to a uh, a a course where you came in and did nothing and we're just learning. Uh, we do start from there and we're slowly building on that. Uh, we do, there are times when we talk about more technical terms like, um, uh, well, capability analyses and, uh, gauge R and R or, uh, measurement system analysis where we, and we do talk some of the more complicated statistics. But at that time, when we do that, we provide images, we provide resources, we provide some sort of explanation, and we try to speak to it in terms that you can understand if you're not a practitioner or a, a statistician. So I'd say a beginner uh, could follow along with a lot of the materials, but I do recommend that they start on the early side and, and try to work their way up to it. Oh, terrific. And, and so how many episodes do you have out at this point? I just recorded uh, my 76th episode, so that's um, about uh, 76 episodes, actually, was with an interview with an author. So, um, yeah, every week, every Monday, uh, well, actually, it's usually Sunday, between Sundays and Mondays, depending right. on, on how my weekend is going, sure. uh, that I'll release the episode. Uh, but, yeah, so far, I have not have not missed a week. Okay. And, and your episodes are normally about what length? I shoot for about uh, 20 minutes, but at times they have gone up to uh, up to 45 minutes or so, somewhere okay. between there. Okay. So much shorter than the Engineering Commons podcast. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, if I find that I'm actually going over, because I do release every week, there are times when I'll I'll sit down and, and something like this, and I'll split it into two, just because uh, a it's easier on me that way. I don't have to come up with an entire new plan for next week. <laughs> um, but also, you know, there is some sort of rule of thumb out there that you know most most people don't have a a commute, and they're listening on their commute, which aren't much longer than you know twenty minutes to a half hour. So it's good to target that uh, that, and you know the the material is kind of dense. You know, it's uh, right. some of it. Some of it I've gotten into pretty uh, technical stuff, and uh, you know, there's only so much the brain can take of that. <laughs> right, right. Well, we 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 fancy ourselves more storytellers here on the Engineering Commons, so that may count I've, for I've the very much as well. have enjoyed listening to you guys. Uh, the uh, the 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 beer. Um, the one of you guys talked about all the beer, and then I think one of you spilled the beer and ruined the finish on your chair or something like that. That was, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you guys are very entertaining, and I, <laughs> I appreciate being able to uh, to uh, listen to other engineers uh, over the pod waves. Oh, fantastic! Although I'm not, I can't really call myself an engineer anymore. Let's be honest. I, you know, I, I, I do. <laughs> it was a couple episodes ago. You said, "Well, you know, once an engineer, always an engineer." I do refer to myself as a chemical engineer still, but I'll—I'll I'll be honest. I—I uh, I lost that title the day I graduated and didn't do it ever again after that. Well, uh, that's one way to look at it, but I figure <laughs> you earned that degree. I mean, you went—you sat in the classes and you passed the uh, tests, and you marched your way through school and earned that degree. And uh, as far as I'm concerned. You, if you have that diploma, you are an engineer. All right. I it proudly. <laughs> yeah, that was the hard – the degree is <laughs> the hard part. <laughs> right. So, uh, Aaron, any final advice for listeners that might be interested in learning more about workflow or Six Sigma, these types of issues? 
Yeah, you know, one of the one of the I guess my pet peeves, you know, as I go out into pretty much every process or consumer process out there, uh, is I I now that I have this experience, I know what I'm looking for, I know what waste is, I know when a process or a customer experience is wrong. Um, I just ask some people, hey, take a look, look around, take a look at what's going on. Do you see inventory piling up? Um, if 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 you do have that you know, start to question, is that really necessary? Do we really need to have that inventory there? And, and is this waste? So take a look at what are the Toyota wastes? And then after you start to recognize these things, you start to say, wait a minute, I don't really need to be doing this work, or I don't need to be doing this work this way. There's a better way. Uh, just open up your eyes a little bit. That's what I'll ask is people to open up their eyes a little bit and start to see things with a little, little bit different, um, colored lenses and um you know the first trick is to really recognize that there's a problem and and then decide hey you know what i'm really i'm not okay with spending my time on things that are not of very much value uh to this customer or the company or or to myself so i start to question that right now if people are actually interested in becoming more involved with lean and Six Sigma, I do recommend that they, they listen to my podcast because mine is the only one out there that actually gives uh, tips um, on how to do uh, certain tools. A lot of them, the other ones that are out there are mostly just, hey, we're interviewing this consultant and whatnot. Mine is much more instructional. So, um, But there's a lot of opportunities out there uh, and it's extremely versatile um, career path. Uh, it's one at which you know engineers can get into um, you know, different types of industries um, and one that, um, you know, you can sort of jump the line between uh, different states. You know, the government is picking up Lean and Six Sigma to try to reduce the problems that they're having. Finance, healthcare is the next new big one because yeah, surgeries and accidents, those things still happen and they need to have processes that are standardized and improved uh, using this. So this, it is starting to really expand. It's gone well beyond manufacturing. And, uh, you know, people just take a look and, and find out if it's something for them. Terrific. Well, if our listeners should uh, have questions for you, uh, is there someplace we can send them? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, anybody can email me at uh, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at E6S-methods.com. Uh, I am on Twitter as well. Uh, I, my handle is at E6S Industries. You can find my website, www.e6s-methods.com. And I am on uh, LinkedIn, and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So that's just uh, linkedin.com slash IN slash Aaron Spearin, A-A-R-O-N-S-P-E. A-R-I-N, and I'm, I'm happy to connect with anybody, have any kind of discussion anybody wants on, on the topics or, or pretty much anything. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking for podcast guests too, you know, people who maybe have done some work like this or, or have some story to share uh, and, and like to go through anything that somebody else can learn from. I'd love to have somebody on, on the podcast as well to uh, share what they've learned. Well, fantastic. We will uh, we will put all those addresses and links in the show notes so people can find them at a later date in case they're currently driving down the highway and unable to uh, make a note. And uh, let me just say, Aaron, we really appreciate your spending some time with us and uh, sharing your expertise and insights. 
Oh, thank you very much, Jeff. And, and uh, thank you, Adam, as well. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. This was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a good evening. You too. Good night. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.